0: This episode is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com/slash-author-chris-lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 181. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastic world of Metamore City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share where I'm at on my writer's journey. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 39 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In our last two episodes, Kate met with her old captain and mentor, Joe Montgomery. Twenty-seven years ago, Montgomery worked with Kate's father, Jacob, on a string of murder kidnappings called the Midnight Snatcher case which bore an eerie resemblance to the killings that Kate is investigating now. The two detectives uncovered evidence of an apocalypse cult, which had wormed its way into the highest levels of imperial society. This cult has been around for at least a thousand years, and it worships a powerful, godlike entity that is trapped outside of their reality. The entity's power waxes and wanes over the centuries, and when its power increases, the cult becomes active, trying to carry out their master's mysterious agenda. The cult is opposed by Murakir, an immortal wizard from the Age of Heroes. Centuries ago, the cult tried to steal the divine power that grants him eternal life, and though they failed, Murakir's power is now inextricably tied to that of the entity. He can sense when the cult is moving, and he recruits mortals to help him stop their schemes. Three decades ago, Jacob was one such pawn, and now Murakir has recruited Kate in turn. The cultists assassinated Jacob in order to stop him from exposing them, but they offered Montgomery a bargain. They would spare his life, and the lives of Jacob's wife and daughter, in exchange for Montgomery's silence. They offered this deal because Montgomery had an insurance policy, a file box stuffed with evidence that would expose the cult's operations, including the identities of dozens of important members. Montgomery has kept up his end of the deal for almost thirty years, until now, when the cult has become active again, and Kate's life is once more in danger. Montgomery hands over the files to Kate. If she's going after the cult, he wants her to have the best possible chance to take them down. He points out to her several important pieces of evidence such as the fact that every time the Midnight Snatcher killed another victim, it caused a spike in outsider incursions in the surrounding area. In horror, Kate realizes what the cult is trying to do. They're using death magic to weaken the barriers between realities, making it easier for them to reach the entity, or for it to reach them. But even worse is the revelation that Kate's new boss, Captain Rowan Shaw, may be a member of the cult. Not only can Kate not trust her captain, she may not be able to trust anyone in special investigations, all of whom were hand-picked by Shaw. Since she can't bring Montgomery's evidence to SID, Kate resolves to take it to her street-side contacts. Hopefully, they'll be able to use their resources to figure out where the cult is operating now and how to put a stop to them. But first, Kate has to decide what to do about her partner, Lizzie. She hasn't been with S.I.D. for very long, so Shaw might not have brainwashed her yet. But Kate has seen firsthand the kind of fanatical loyalty Shaw inspires. She needs to make her decision quickly, before the cult can kill again. But if she makes the wrong call, the consequences could be disastrous. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red By Chris Lester Chapter 39 Kate took the northbound highway back into Metamore Valley, and into the full force of rush hour traffic. The slow, bumper-to-bumper crawl gave her plenty of time to make a few phone calls, Nice to hear from you again, John said, when she called him at the Hedonist Temple. I was beginning to think you'd gotten bored of me. Kate flashed back to their last time together, the mind-searing pleasure of it still bright and glowing in her memory. Definitely not that, she said, feeling the heat of a blush creeping up her neck and into her cheeks. We'll talk about the personal stuff later, okay? We've got an all-hands meeting and I need your help. Can I pick you up at 87th and Teffen Street in... She checked the estimate on the NAV system. About 40 minutes. I'll be there, John said. Good. Um, listen, my partner Lizzie's with me, so she'll be my eyes. Why don't you wear that outfit you wore on Thursday? There was the briefest pause. Understood. See you soon. Lizzie looked at Kate curiously as she rang off. Am I going to meet your boyfriend? she asked, a smile tugging at the corners of her muzzle. Or something, Kate muttered. John wasn't a fighter, but Kate knew from delightful experience how strong he was. He also had a host of incubus powers that he could put to use, if it turned out that Lizzie couldn't be trusted. Those powers would be more likely to work if Lizzie wasn't expecting them, hence the request to pick John up away from the temple and in human guise. Plotting against your own partner, Kate thought morosely. You're a real piece of work, Katane. The second call was to Morgan, and it took Kate four tries before the vampire finally answered. Yes, Kate? Sorry, Morgan. Did I wake you? Not to worry, darling. What can I do for you? We've got new intel that needs processing, and I need people I can trust to go through it with me. Of course. When and where? Kate checked the nav system again. Let's call at eight o'clock. I'm not going to name the location on an open line, but you remember the place you took Evan? Yes. Do we have permission to meet there? That's my next call. If we get a thumbs down, I'll call you back with another plan. All right. Should I retrieve Michael as well? Kate had almost forgotten about Michael. Yeah, that's a good idea. The list of cops Kate was sure she could trust was small. But Michael was a recent transplant from Flatlands Province, so she knew he wouldn't have any connections to the cult. Besides, he'd proven himself useful more than once on this case already. I'll call him straight away, Morgan said. See you at eight, unless I hear otherwise. Copy that. Kate out. Lizzie looked over at Kate again. Am I allowed to know where we're going? Not yet, sorry. It's kind of a safe house for one of my informants, The location is need-to-know only. Lizzie nodded once. Understood. Is there anything you'd like me to do to prepare in the meantime? Just put the seat back and get some rest. We could have a long night ahead of us. Kate dialed the third number, and this time she used her burner phone. Callie Linder answered after the third ring, and she didn't sound happy. Where have you been? Not on an open line, Kate warned. We need to rally the troops. Morgan tells me you have a home base now? Callie hesitated a moment before answering. For now. Not looking to advertise it, though. You know how to get here? I do, Kate said. I'm bringing John. Morgan's bringing Michael, the guy who helped us before. Fine, Callie said shortly, but I want him blindfolded. She paused. You heard back from that detective drowling Sent with Will? Kate glanced over at Lizzie. Yeah, the captain pulled her off that detail to follow another lead. She's with me now. Callie was silent for several seconds. Well, that's convenient, she said at last. Yeah, listen, we'll be there at about eight, all right? I copy, Callie said. Just don't forget those blindfolds, kitty cat. Will do. See you soon. Traffic had started to thin out by the time that Kate pulled up to the fourth-level intersection where she told John to meet them. Lizzie sat up and started scanning the pedestrians on the sidewalk. What does your boyfriend look like? she asked. He's not my boyfriend, Kate said. Tan skin, reddish hair, burgundy silk shirt, black jeans. Lizzie sat up a bit straighter in her seat. I think maybe... Oh, God's... "'Is that him?' she pointed. Kate looked. John was leaning back against the light-post on the far side of the intersection. Half a dozen women and a couple of men were gathered in a semicircle around him, watching him as if entranced. John was pretending not to notice. "'That's him, all right,' Kate sighed. Lizzie licked her lips. "'I'm going to be completely superficial here—' and assume you are a very lucky woman. Kate grumbled something incoherent. When the light changed, she crossed the intersection and pulled up to the curb. Lizzie immediately hopped out, sketched a quick bow to John, and climbed into the back seat. John blew a kiss to his assembled fan club and climbed in. Kate stabbed at the accelerator, pulling away before John could try to kiss her hello or something. Tight schedule, I take it? John asked, dryly. Lots to do, less time to do it, Kate agreed. She crooked a thumb at the back seat. John, this is my partner, Lizzie Moore. Lizzie, this is John. John looked over his shoulder and hit Lizzie with his ten-megawatt smile. Delighted. Kate checked Lizzie's reaction in her rearview mirror. Her eyes had widened to roughly the size of dinner plates and her tail was completely still. Likewise, she said. Her voice came out very high. Another noise came from the back seat as well, a diffuse rumbling sound, hard to localize. Oh, Eli, Kate groaned. Are you purring? Seriously? John chuckled, the rich, deep sound that made Kate's nipples stand erect every time she heard it. This time was no exception. The rumbling in the back seat grew louder. This is very embarrassing, Lizzie said. I think it's adorable, John said. Kate sighed. I swear I can't take you anywhere. The rest of the drive consisted of John asking polite questions of Lizzie, and Lizzie fumbling over her answers. Kate focused on dealing with the traffic around her, which was moving smoothly now, but still thick with vehicles. Finally, they reached the skimmer lift closest to Kenning security. Once they pulled inside, Kate pressed the button for descent and turned to her passengers. Okay, you two. Our hostess doesn't want you to see how to get where you're going. Put something over your eyes, and no peeking. Without a word, John took off his silk shirt, revealing his perfectly toned abs. Kate heard a squeak from the back seat. Solemnly, John rolled up the shirt around its longest axis and tied it around his head. Kate looked back at Lizzie, raising her eyebrows expectantly. Lizzie didn't move. Kate reached back and snapped her fingers in front of the leopard morph's face. Come on, Liz, we're on the clock here. Lizzie shook herself visibly, then looked down at her clothes. Yes, um... She checked her pockets, found a clean handkerchief, then rolled it up and covered her eyes. The skimmer lift arrived at street level, and the gate buzzed and slid open. Kate did a quick scan of their surroundings. Seeing no immediate threats, she pulled the skimmer out and headed down the road. The sun hadn't quite set yet, but under four layers of skyways, that distinction was irrelevant. Night had fallen on the street, and that meant danger. Kate kept her high beams on, checked to make sure the doors were all locked, and watched for anything suspicious. Kenning's security was lit up like a high-end skimmer dealership, brilliant floodlights leaving nowhere to hide around its perimeter. Kate pulled into the lot and back and parked. Morgan's skimmer was already there along with Callie's swoop, and a couple of other vehicles Kate didn't recognize. "'All right,' Kate said. "'I'm going to come around and open your doors. "'Then I want you to link hands and follow me to the entrance. "'Don't peek until I tell you.' "'Understood,' Lizzie said. "'You know, if you're into this sort of thing, all you had to do is ask,' John said. "'Kate did not dignify that with a response.' After retrieving the file box from the trunk, she led them to the front entrance, the only entrance she could see, although she was sure there must be at least one concealed door somewhere, and pressed the call button with her elbow. The door buzzed to let them in immediately. Kate spent half a minute trying to juggle the box and the door handle before John sensed the problem and held the door open for her. A voice came over the speakers in the entry hall. It was male, and Kate didn't recognize it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We apologize for the inconvenience, but the killing room you have just entered is currently out of order. Please proceed down the ramp to the nearest lift, where we will be happy to assist you with all of your intruder-slaying needs. Thanks, Aspira, that's not too unsettling, John muttered. I respectfully beg to differ, Lizzie said. The fur on her tail was fluffed out to twice its normal size. Kate led the way down the ramp and into the lift. Once they were inside, she said, Okay, you can take off the blindfolds now. They did so. John slung his shirt over his shoulder, not bothering to put it back on. The lift reached the top, chimed, and opened its doors. Kate stepped into what she presumed was Silas's loft, Looking out over his vast array of computers, Kate saw a skinny, nerdy looking man sitting at the main computer desk, a somewhat heavier nerdy looking man leaning against the railing, Morgan, Michael, and Evan seated at a kitchen table. Callie stood with her arms crossed in front of an open gun safe, and she had a small ceramic tile with a painted rune clenched between her fingers. Hi, kitty-cat, she said, and snapped the tile. There was a flash of light, and suddenly Kate felt herself being shoved to the floor. The box fell with her, mercifully landing topside up. John hit the floor alongside her in the same instant. They both scrambled onto their backs, looked up. Lizzie was surrounded by a shimmering bubble of arcane energy. She reached out, pressed against it with both hands. It hummed and glowed brighter where she touched it, but the force field did not budge. Lizzie's fur was standing out all over her body now. She looked wide-eyed at Callie, then at Kate. Kate? she asked, her voice trembling. Kate, what's going on? Kate shook her head, speechless. She turned to look at Callie. The runner's eyes were fixed on Lizzie, her face a mask of hatred and suppressed rage. Thanks for bringing her in, kitty cat, Callie said. Now listen here, you backstabbing bitch. What did your little cultist buddies do with my will? And that's the end of Chapter 39. Can Kate keep her team from tearing itself apart? Can Lizzie persuade Callie of her innocence? Find out next week. Lois McMaster Bujold said, Don't wish to be normal. Wish to be yourself to the hilt. Find out what you're best at and develop it, and hopscotch your weaknesses. Wish to be great at whatever you are. So let's see how I'm developing my storytelling talents. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,249 words this week, over the course of 6.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 778 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 161 days without breaking my chain. This week, I'm proud to announce that I have finished my new novel, Homecoming. At the end of the first draft, the manuscript has a word count of 85,495 words. I started writing this book on September 10th, 2018, and I finished it on March 13th, 2019, for a total of 185 calendar days from start to finish. I worked on the book on 111 of those days, spending a total of 128.75 hours, so I averaged 770 words per day and 664 words per hour, That's the fastest I've ever completed a full-length novel. It's also the first time I've completed anything bigger than a piece of flash fiction since 2017, so I'm feeling very good about that. The story is off with my beta readers now, and my hope is to release it to the public on June 1st. After finishing Homecoming, I decided to go back and work on an unfinished story from 2016, which I'm tentatively calling The Nearness of You. This is a near-future sci-fi romance, or possibly a high-tech ghost story, depending on how you look at it. I stopped working on this one because I had started second-guessing myself when the story headed in a more erotic direction. Looking back on it now, though, I think what I have is really good, and I'm going to try to finish it. Over on the Patreon campaign, we have a new patron this month. Say hello to Charlie. For those of you donating at the $3 level or higher, there's another sneak peek of Homecoming. This scene is taken from Chapter 2, where John meets Kate's parents for the first time. If you've ever wondered what sort of folks raised a woman like Catherine Catane, now's your chance to find out. If you like my stories and want to help me keep making them, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Roughly 90% of what you pledge goes directly to me, which is a higher commission than I receive from any other revenue stream. For $3 a month, you get access to sneak peeks, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, all patrons receive my behind-the-episode audio commentaries, as well as bonus art from our talented Metamore City artists. Carol Foote is working on her next piece from To Walk in Shadow, and I think you guys are going to like it. Just go to patreon.com slash author chris lester take a look at the reward levels and make a pledge today and if you're already a patron thank you so much for your support and now the feedback joseph writes good afternoon chris i was trying to track down a story you released a while back it was the lovecraftian erotica piece you did i see that it's not in the apple podcast library anymore was that ever printed If so, where can I get a copy? If not, where can I find an audio of it? Hi, Joseph. That piece is called Maternal Instinct, and you can find it in episodes 92 and 93 of The Raven and the Writing Desk. It's true that it's no longer in the Apple podcast feed, but the episodes are still available to download. I'll put links in the show notes. The story is not available for sale yet, but I'm working on a new collection of my non-metamore fiction, which I plan to release later this year. When I have more information on that, I'll let you know. Thanks for writing in! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900 then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.